want to thank Hannah, Nathan, Francis for leading us through the worship time. Thank you for always thinking about our songs and getting us into the presence of the Lord. And Howard prayed for us, or prayed with us, as we again came into the presence of the Lord. These are important things to remind us why we're here today, really to be in God's presence. Okay, let's go through a few things that happened last few Saturdays. This has been very busy here at PCC. Um, you see, a few Saturdays ago, we had church cleanup, and many of you came and cleaned. I don't know if you can tell, but it's actually much cleaner in this building. The windows are cleaner. The sills are much cleaner. Um, and if you take a moment to look outside this window, you'll see a dumpster downstairs where some men came yesterday and filled out the dumpster with all the things in the middle. Adam um, brought all the things out of the basement. We saw so much junk we had. We rented a dumpster, and most of that... Uh, Adam is now in the dumpster, thankfully, so hopefully um, that will keep clear. Don't throw your stuff in the basement anymore when you have junk. Don't put it down there anymore. It takes too long to clean it. Okay, some more Saturdays come up. Oh, actually, one Sunday. This is Easter Sunday. You see uh, Liz here being baptized. It was nice to see her family and ACF supporting her there. And then two Saturdays ago was the graduation for 2020 nurses. They missed it because of COVID, so they had their actual graduation two Saturdays ago. You see um, Diana, Abby, Val and Celine graduating and their families. It was nice they could celebrate with them. And then the bottom two pictures are uh, pictures of Chinatown. So you didn't know Pittsburgh had or maybe has a Chinatown. It's one building now, but they made it a historical landmark. And um, Jay and Shabo brought their Way Strong group to perform there, many other performances. But especially interesting that Mom had a chance to come up on stage and tell them what it was like to grow up in Chinatown. And she ended that with talking about Providence Mission. You might remember Providence Mission is the seed that started PCC. And so they're trying to push mom off like your time's up. She said, no, 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 I have more something to say. And she had to get that in about how people came to Chinatown, ministered to those little children, and how that turned into PCC. So I'm very thankful that she was able to share that with the people there. And it's another Saturday. Uh, this was a cell group picnic between cell group A, cell group B. And so thankful you came out to share food, fellowship with each other, and bring a lot of newcomers. It was a nice day to see new people come and visit uh, the cell groups on that day. So Saturdays, the weekends have been very busy. God's doing a lot here at PCC. I'm very thankful to see the growth here and what God is doing. Okay, so let's get back to Genesis. We can go back to Genesis now. Genesis 5, the last time I spoke to you, was about a genealogy from Adam to Noah. And then Pastor Hans brought us through chapter 6, and a world of trouble was the violence, the destruction, man's heart being set on sin all the time. And then we went to chapter 7, where God said, that's it, I'm tired, I'm frustrated with you guys, I'm flooding them. But in the midst of the flood, in the midst of that wrath, in the midst of that judgment, God had channels of grace. And that's really Noah's ark. Uh, Noah, Shem, Japheth, Ham, being saved by the Lord and their wives, and this grace being extended to Noah and the remnant of God's people, God continues to save. Okay, so today we're going to go through two chapters, chapters 10 and 11, the Tower of Babel and the intervention there. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Genesis 10 and get there. And if you don't, if this is your first time here, please raise your hand. We have Genesis journals for you, and ushers are here to pass them out to you, so if you need one, please raise your hand. We, this is our gift to you, and I'd like you to have a copy of Genesis. Okay, so there's two genealogies in Genesis, and Pastor Hans gave me the first one in Genesis 5, and of course in Genesis 10, he said, Gordon, you did such a good job on Genesis, the genealogy for here's the only other genealogy, you take care of it this time. So here's my job to get you through another set of genealogies in Genesis 10. 
So Genesis 10 starts here. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, and here's what we're gonna concentrate on. Uh, not so much Noah, but Shem, Ham, and Japheth, his three sons, born to them after the flood. So their descendants after the flood of Japheth are Gomer, Magog, Medai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, Tiras, the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Ripeth, and Togamah. So as I just mentioned, the remnant was saved, which was Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and after the flood, they start having children. Now we're gonna concentrate right here on Japheth. Japheth here has um, children that go out. And so, um, guys much more intelligent than I, put this together on a chart for us so we can see Japheth. Japheth basically heads north. After the flood, we would think that Noah lands somewhere in Turkey, somewhere, we don't know exactly where Mount Ararat is, but basically they go north. So we think about Gomer and who else is up there? Um, Ripath, they basically head north. And this is um, documented by Homer. Homer says that uh, some of the people that Azkenai are also heading north here along with Magog. And it's interesting because even in Germany now, there's some Azkenai Jews who are still in Germany. They identify themselves as that. And so basically they head north. Most of his descendants go north after the flood with one exception of uh, Javan. Javan, as you look in your Bible, said they're coastal people. So Javan here, uh, sets up in Crete and in Greece and basically populates around the Mediterranean Sea. So you think of Japheth, basically think north and into Russia. And, and if you guys know your scripture well, you know you'll see Gog and Magog again in Revelation, somewhere around 20 or so. You'll see God, no, that's too far. Uh, somewhere in Genesis, toward the end of Genesis, you'll see the prophecies of Gog and Magog coming down and attacking God's people at that point. Okay, so let's keep going on. So that's Japheth. The next guy we're gonna study is Ham. That's his other son, second son. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. That's what we're gonna study today. So Nimrod is intimately connected with Babel. Erech, Akkad, Kauna, and the land of Shinar. From the land he went into Assyria, you know Assyria and Babylon continually to persecute Israel and built Nineveh. Canaan, as we studied, before, fathered Sidon. And look who comes out of Canaan. Firstborn of Heth, Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, Hivites, Archites, and Sinites. You recognize those guys as the people that live in Canaan. So we think about Ham now, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. So where do Ham descendants go? Here into Egypt, that's Mizram. Here into Libya, which we put. And then we often associate Cush with Ethiopia. So they go basically south but there's a, a branch of Ham that actually stays here in the Middle East. That's Canaan. And we just talked about that today. Hivites, Girgashites, Hittites. Those are the guys that Israel fights all the time. When we talk about Joshua, when we're going through Joshua, they had to conquer all those people. Those are the sons of Canaan that they fought against. And those people settled right where God promised the land to Abraham. And so those are Canaan's descendants. And what we're gonna study today is Nimrod's area. Right there in the Fertile Crescent, in the Mesopotamian plain there, the land of Shinar, comes out Babylon, comes out Assyria, comes out this place called Babel, and that's sons of Ham. Okay, so we talked about that. So two of the descendants here are um, the Hittites and the Sinites that come out of Canaan. So here's our first bonus, bonus material today. 
where did the Chinese come from? You think, where did we come from? Where did this population come from? And there's a tenuous connection, but I'm reading from Bible.org. Sign or sin is frequently encountered in Chinese name in a form of Siang or sin. Hittites and Sinites are most likely to be the ancestors of the Oriental peoples. It's a tenuous relationship here. And Pastor Hans told me, be careful about this because there's no clear thing. And I agree, there's no clear idea that the Hittites and Sinites, which head a little bit more east, end up in China. But there is scientific evidence, which I gave you last time about the genealogies. Studies of Chinese populations show that 97% of their genetic makeup from the ancestral modern humans are from Africa. And that's a scientific American that says that. So there is some evidence that the people in Africa, Ham's descendants, and Chinese people have some genetic makeup. There's some similarities between there. So it's tenuous, but it's possible that between the Hittites and the Sinites, we are descendants of those, those who are Chinese. Okay. Okay, let's go on to the last son. So we're talking about Shem now. This is uh, verses 21 to 25. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, and the elder brother of Japheth, children were born, the sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Apashat, Lud, and Aram. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg. For his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. So Shem basically stays right here in the Medes. Shem, we have um, Aram. Uh, more in Arabia is Joktan, and then um, Arpashad, more in the Iran and Iraq areas. So Shem, you want to think basically in the Mideast. Basically, Shem stays right um, in a Fertile Crescent area. And Shem is very important because out of Shem's line is really the godly line. Now, I'm going to jump you to chapter 11. So let's go to chapter 11. And at the very end of chapter 11, well, let me go to verse 10. Verse 10 of chapter 11 tells us these are generations of Shem. So Ham and Jepeth are not the godly line. So we don't see a lot of those people again unless they have relation to the godly line. If we see the Hittites or Babylon or Syria mentioned in the Bible again, it's only in relation to God's people. The Bible is very God-centric and the Bible is very God's people-centric. So we won't talk about those people again unless they interact with Israel. But the godly line, Shem's line, let's jump down to 27. Now, these are generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, um, Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Terah took Abram, his son, the Lot, the son of Haran, and he went forth the land of Ur to the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they got to Haran, they settled there. So you see the very important line of Shem uh, through Terah uh, comes uh, Abr Abram. And Abram, again, as I'm trying to tell you, is is that godly line. Remember that scarlet cord we talked about that runs through the Old Testament. There's a godly line that comes, and it's, it's usually small, and it's usually not the most powerful one, but God is faithful to them. Just like Rahab, that scarlet cord runs through um, Scripture. It's running through Shem. It's running through Abram. You know, and before we talked about it, run through Seth. It ran through Methuselah. It ran through Noah, and now into his son, Shem. So, Keep an eye on that as we go forward. Pastor Hans will bring us to chapter 12, and we'll talk about Abram for a long time. We'll be weeks, possibly months, talking about Abram after this through the godly line of Shem. So let me recount what we covered so far. This is the basic idea of where Jepheth goes. Jepheth goes up into Europe. Jepheth goes into Russia. He goes north. 
Ham basically goes into Africa and into, well, we speculate, Asia over that side, okay? And then Shem, he basically says, I'm going to stay here in the Mideast, Northern Africa, and the Middle East area, the Mesopotamian plain. And then the little godly line stays in Israel, in Canaan. So it's kind of interesting how God populates the earth and how God sends it out after the flood, Ham, Shem, and Japheth go throughout the earth. Okay. Okay, so the rest of our time today, we're going to spend time talking about Genesis 11. So if you turn to Genesis 11, let's take a look at where we're at today. So it's a very interesting account. In the midst of all this genealogy, chapter and chapter, basically two chapters of genealogy, we have this very interesting account of Babel. Now, why would God put this story of Babel right in the middle of all this genealogy? And if we take time to think about context and what God is doing, let's build a little context for what God's doing here in Genesis 11. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And this idea here, they migrated from the east, they found the plain of Shinar and settled there. Remember who we talked about here? We talked about this guy named Nimrod. Nimrod is not a good guy. He's named here as a mighty hunter, as someone who's very powerful, so the Lord acknowledges that, but he's also very secular. He starts the kingdom of Babylon. He starts the city, which is an affront to God. He's very secular in his mindset, and out of those things, we know that Nimrod is at the base of this story, and his thinking is very secular. So we think about what happens next. Let's go on to verse 3. Kind of interesting verse. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. You think, okay, why does the Bible include this? Let's burn bricks and let's burn them thoroughly. I'm thinking, okay, all scripture is important. Why does scripture include this? And why would they have to tell us that how they made bricks and they took basically bitumen or tar to put it together? Uh, It's kind of interesting because when you think about what the Bible's teaching us here, we think about the culture of that day. This was the best technology they had. This is the best thing that we have. This is the best material, the most modern material, the thing that is going to be the biggest accomplishment that we're going to ever build. We're going to make it with bricks, and we're going to burn them thoroughly, and then we're going to use the best mortar that we have, this bitumen, uh, to put it together. And you think about that and you think it's basically giving them the idea to be proud of what they have to be prideful in what we can build with our hands and be able to take something with our own hands and make it into what we're going to shape it to i did a little research on this um you guys know the five best or hardest materials that we can use to build number five is wood number four is brick what these guys use number three is stone number two is concrete Concrete's so strong because it has steel in it, those rebar in it, so number one is steel. So they're building with the fourth most technologically advanced thing that they had. In time, steel will probably be not number one anymore. But in that time, they're saying, we're building with the best stuff that we have. Look at us. Look at our technology. Look what we can do. And so you're getting an idea of where they're heading with this. So let's look at their attitudes a little bit more closely. As we look at verse 4, then they said, Come, let's build a city for God. Let's honor God with our work. Let's praise our creator. After we just went through this big flood, let's remember what he did with Noah and our forefather and what he did. Just the opposite. Let's build 
The city for who? For ourselves, for me, for what I can stand for. Let's build something in the vision that I have. Let's build it of what I want. I don't really want anything else but something for myself. And it's very clear, their vision and their purpose is to build for ourselves, for me. And that's prevalent today, isn't it? The attitudes and the thoughts that we have. It's about me and my kingdom and what I can get and what's mine. This attitude is not new. You think it's terrible on the earth day. I think uh, Matt just said that day. It's terrible on the earth day. You know, it was terrible on the earth in the time of Babel because they had that same attitude, this idea that it's about me and I'm not going to depend on God. I'm going to build a city that's going to provide for my physical, my social, emotional needs and I don't need God. It's for myself. Okay? And now what do they say? And a tower with its top to the heavens. What are they saying here? That I don't want anything above me. I'm going to be the biggest and the tallest and the grandest. My tower is going to pierce into God's space. God's not going to be my authority. No one's over me. No one can be above me. I'm going to build something, and you know what? I'm the pinnacle. I'm going to worship myself. There's nothing above me. I'm going to pierce into his space. God will not have that sovereignty over me. So you see their attitude. You see what they're saying. And your scripture very clearly records this for us. Now what do they say? Let us make a name for ourselves. You know what? It's not about God. It's not about the authority over me. It's about me and my reputation and what I can stand for myself. And it's very interesting. You'll see what Pastor Hans brings to us next week in Genesis 12, 2. I will make you a great nation. He's talking to Abraham. I will make your name great. God makes Abram's name great. God is the one that raises us. God is the one who lifts us up, but not for them. It's myself to lift up. I'm going to do it. It's my own hands, my own accomplishment. It's no longer about God. They're trying to wipe God out in every aspect that they can. And this is what their attitude is. This is their heart. And then finally it says, let us be dis- uh, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So um, God gave that command. You know, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Go out on the earth. Go out. Nope, not us. We're going to stay here. We're going to put right here. God's not going to tell us what to do. We're going completely against what God wants. And you think about people that are dispersed, oftentimes that's used in battle. When you lose the battle and someone's victorious over you, you have to run for your life. You scatter. Someone has been victorious over you. Someone has given sovereignty over you. We don't want that. We're going to stand and face God and stand right here. And God, again, cannot tell us what to do, can't show us uh, the correct way to live our lives. We will determine for ourselves to be our own God. We're going to worship ourselves. It's all about us, all about me and what I want. Okay, so I want you to get in that mindset because that's the mindset of Nimrod. That's the mindset of Babel. That's the mindset of the Assyrians, the Babylonians. Everyone that comes in that area afterwards, they all have the same mindset. We have that same mindset when you think about it. This is really about us, but we don't like to say that, but it is. It's really our attitude, and we have that same attitude. Okay, so what's the response to that? In verse 5, God responds to this. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. So this is an anthropomorphism where God comes off his throne, his grand throne, he's in heaven, and he says, you know what? I think they're building something down there. And he has to come off, and the, and the greatest achievement that man has ever made, the highest, tallest thing that's ever been built, he's going to come out and say, I, I think I can almost see what they're doing down there. You know, it, it, it's, it's a, 
form of showing how great God is. He is so far above us. He is so high above us. He has to come down to see our greatest achievement. It is really unfortunate that man thinks that we're doing so great, doing so much, and God is so far above us. It doesn't even register on his scale. It's like you guys, when you come in and tell me, like, I brushed my teeth, I'm cleaning really well, and I look at your teeth thinking, what have you done here? You haven't taken care of your tongue, you're not brushing, you know, the gingival tissue underneath there, you're not flossing under the gum line, you're not using your rubber tip water pick, you're not using mouth rinse to kill the tissue on your tongue and your cheeks. What are you guys doing here? And you think you're doing so good. I look at it and I think, you know, you're not doing very good at all. It's an idea here that is so far above what we can do, God is so far above us, right? Okay. Now, here is the turning point in the story. Here is a very Im interesting verse here. Now, this is verse six. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have one language, which is fine. I think this is good. Out of Noah, we have Ham, Shem, and Japheth. They have basically one family, they're basically one language. That would make sense. That's good. That's kind of, I think, in some ways, what God intended. But look what happens next here. And what God says, this is only the beginning of what they will do. Now, this really changes the story. You have to understand this part here. This is only the beginning of what they will do. I'm trying to set the context here. What are they doing? Are they doing something godly? Are they doing something productive? Are they doing something that was good for them? And we would say, no. All the things that we studied so far have been selfish and prideful and arrogant and going against your creator and going against what God's design are. They're heading in a totally wrong direction. They're doing something terrible. And they're only begin this is only the tip of the iceberg, this terrible city, this terrible tower, this terrible mentality they have, they're only beginning to get started. And they're heading in a bad way. And God knows this. And he sees this. And he says, this is not what I want. Now let's think back to Genesis 6. In Genesis 6, what did God say? You know, just before he floods the earth, he said, the man is so terrible, it's violent and destruction. Man's heart is on evil all the time. That's a bad place to be. That was a terrible place to be. It was so bad that what Pashans taught us in you know, seven and eight, God had to kill them all. He had to flood everyone. He had to destroy every life being on the earth except those eight in the ark. It was a terrible place. And God sees this happening again. They're, they're doing it again. They're heading in the same place just like Genesis six, seven and eight. They're doing it again. And God sees this happening. And God is not gonna let it happen this time. I know what happened last time. I know what happened just a few generations ago in a time of Noah, and I'm not gonna let it happen again. And so he's, and, and God's gonna do something here. God says, I see this at the beginning of what they're gonna do, and now this verse comes in context. We often see this verse here, and nothing that they propose will now be impossible for them. You think, wow, God's afraid of man. God's afraid that man's gonna be doing incredible things. We can't stop man. We better stop man right now because he's gonna take over our kingdom. And you take it out of context, you could say that that's what it says, but you look in context of what it's saying, there's nothing that they propose. What are they proposing to do? Evil things, selfish things, godless things. They're gonna continue in their evil ways. They're gonna continue to destroy themselves. They're gonna be so prideful that they will be destroyed forever, eternally. That's what there is impossible. It will not be impossible for them. Their deeds will continue to add up over and over again, and nothing will stop their sin. That's what God's trying to say. Not that they technologically can be so advanced that they're going to rival God. He's not worried about that. But he is concerned that their evil is so big that they're going to be corrupt 
and God will have to end all of life again. He says, I don't want to do that again. So what does God do? If God doesn't want to have the flood again, if God doesn't want to wipe out all of mankind again, God doesn't want to take out all the sin all again, if he says, I don't want to do that again, what will God do? And now we see grace and mercy here. Because here in verse 7, come, let's go down and destroy them. Let's wipe out them completely. No, no, God is gracious. God, let's, says, let's go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. It's different than chapter 6. In chapter 6, he's done with them. You're so evil. There's no hope for you. I'm going to wipe you out. But this time, there's a different response. And God will stop their self-destruction. God will avoid judgment. He's going to avoid wrath. He's going to give them more time. This is a little bit like Methuselah, 969 years. Remember that long patience before the flood comes. God was very patient. And the same thing here. God is giving grace. And although we deserve wrath and judgment, he says, you know what? I'm just going to spread you out over the face of the earth. Okay, so let's take a look at this again. Let's review here. We're going to use our best technology. We're going to build it up. We're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to stand in defiance of God. We're going up the pyramid. This is supposed to be a ziggurat. I couldn't draw a ziggurat well, but I think it's supposed to be a ziggurat. Let's build ourselves a city. We're going up, 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 up. And God sees what they're going to do. God, at the pinnacle I told you, is kind of the turning point in the story. He comes down. I'm going to come down and see this evil that you're doing. I'm coming down, and I'm going to see this evil you're doing. And I see what you're going to do. It's going to end up in a bad place. And now I'm going to confuse your language and scatter you over the face of the earth. I'm going to do something different here. Scatter you all over the place. Okay. So we have a structure here where God builds, builds up to a climax, and then goes back down. Okay. Someone tell Pastor Hans what kind of structure this is. Chiastic structure. Wow, who said that? Matthew, you are now Pastor John's favorite, favorite theological student here. You are paying attention. This is a chiastic structure where the climax, again, is God getting done what he needs to do. He's going to spread out Ham, Shem, and Japheth throughout the earth. That was his plan all along. You're going to fill the earth. And what God does here is an intervention. You're going in a bad way. You guys see in these TV shows, we have interventions for drugs or bad behavior or something. Well, God has an intervention for man. He says, I'm coming down, I see what you're doing, I'm putting a stop to it, and I'm spreading you out all the earth. You're going to follow my will. No matter how strong your will is, now how good your technology is, no matter how much you think you can make a name for yourselves, I am greater, and I'm going to spread you out. You can't stop God's will. I am your authority. I am the one telling you what to do. God's will is not thwarted. God's will is never thwarted. We think that God is losing. We think that God's not in control. We think that God is not good. He can't handle things. God is always in control. God is always doing something good. And his intervention here shows his sovereign plan, being able to do exactly what he intended to do from the beginning. Okay, so let's go a little bit deeper. This is some pretty interesting things here we see in chapter 11. Well, I want you to think now, this intervention, and the Lord came down to see the city in a tower. When else in scripture do we see the Lord come down? And I'm going to go to the New Testament now. I'll give you a big hint. We're going to jump over the Old Testament. From the New Testament, when else does the Lord come down? Obviously, it's through the person of Christ. We see that God came down through the person of Christ. But that is really the basis of all of history in all the New Testament. But if we look at it very carefully. Something very interesting happens right after Christ's death and resurrection. I'm going to go to Acts 2. 
You have to bear with me for a minute. Why I'm going to jump to Acts 2, but let's read a little bit of Acts 2 of God coming down. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So there's an idea here that language is now being used again. When God comes down here in Acts chapter 2, he's using tongues um, through the Holy Spirit to give them utterance. What do these tongues do? It's very interesting here. In, in the next part, we're reading in Acts 2. And how is it that we hear each one of us in their own native language? Look very carefully how each one hears. Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now, isn't that interesting? When God comes down again, he's using language this time. He's using language again to accomplish something very different than before. All those people groups we just talked about before, about the Egyptians, uh, the people that live in Mesopotamia, those in uh, Libya, in um, even Rome, you know, around the um, coastal scene. God is doing something different now. He's using language in a very different way. Now let's look at how God uses language this time. He's using it through the Holy Spirit to give them a special anointing here. So here we are at our chiastic structure again. So we have Christ's death and there's great fear and doubt. And we know the disciples afterwards just scatter all over the place. They have no backbone. They just take off. As soon as Christ is is arrested, they run for their lives. Now Christ reappears to them, ascends, and he, he encourages their heart. But I don't see a real change in the disciples' hearts until this event in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes to the apostles. In Acts chapter 2, we see Peter, and these guys are giving incredible sermons, incredible uh, acts of courage, incredible acts of healing, only come after Acts chapter 2, when God comes down and shows them that language will do what? Language did one thing here in Acts chapter 2. It said, we will use language. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now language, instead of building myself up and telling how great I am and my own accomplishments and what I'm going to do and all about me, language is now used to do something completely different. Language is now used to tell of the mighty works of God. When God comes down this time, he said, you're going to use language for something important, to tell about what I've done through Christ, to tell what Christ has done once and for all. He's lifted the curse. Now, the, the people at Babel and Nimrod's time, they're trying to lift the curse. We don't want this curse over us anymore. We're going to fight against it. We're going to be our own God. But now the curse is lifted through the work of Christ. And the curse being lifted, now we can proclaim that, that what he's done is going to bring unity to all of us all of us that know Christ, all of us that have been cleansed by what we we're singing about today, by the blood of Christ. This unity is not about what I've done and how good I am and what I've accomplished. The unity is about what Christ has done and what Christ has accomplished once and for all. The unity comes as we seek uh, the mighty works that he's done with the word that he's teaching us, the unity of loving him and loving others. This is what language is to do 
this time. We think of others first. This is the intervention that God has done here. And really, it does what he always wanted to do, to start from Judea, Samaria, into the ends of the earth. You're to take this new message I have for you, and you're not being scattered like you're defeated. This time you go in confidence and boldness and what Christ has done, and to the ends of the earth, you will proclaim the mighty works of God. And that's why you're here this morning. That's why you're in church here. Because we are here today to proclaim the mighty acts of God. We're to use our language to tell others what God has done in our life. We're to tell others what Christ has done for us. We're to use language not to build ourselves up and what I've done and how great I am. We're to use language in a whole different way. At Babel, it was used the wrong way. At Babel, it destroyed and caused destruction. Here, it is now to do something different. I'm stuck here. Can you give me one more slide? Can you forward me? Okay. Now it's going to be done in a whole different way. That when we hear our work that God is doing, we are using it now to go forward following his plan. So basically... As we follow the Lord and see his plan and share his mighty works, we're going to be able to experience something very different. So I'd like to close here thinking about what God's plan is overall. We think about the mighty works of God and what he's done. And, and I kind of alluded earlier that we're kind of like brothers because maybe we're all related to him. Maybe we're brothers because we all like picnics or maybe we're brothers because we all like to clean together or we all like these things those things are important but the real importance and the real people who are united together in this room we're united together because we're covered with the blood of christ it's not the color of our skin it's not because we like certain food it's not here it is it's not because of the things that we do together it's because of what christ has done that is what unifies us what unifies us is those that know Christ and are covered by his blood are one together in Christ. That's the mighty work that Christ has done and the mighty work he's doing here at our church through PCC. It's not the cleanup, it's not the picnics, those are not the mighty things. The mighty things are the unity that we have in Christ. So let's close on that as we remember what Christ has done here. Father, we see the selfishness, the arrogance, the pride at Babel. We see the arrogance, the pride, and the selfishness in our world. And maybe, Father, you pointed out the sin of the arrogance, the pride, and the selfishness in our own hearts and what dwells there. And how we're building our own kingdom against you and our acts and our thoughts are an affront to you. May we understand, Father, that you've intervened in our lives. You've stepped in when we're heading in a bad direction. You've sent Christ to us to cover all of those sins. That once and for all, the curse is overcome. The curse is being overcome. The curse is finished in Christ. And as we have that joy and the peace that that brings, may we find unity in Christ and unity with the other people in this room who know that same truth. 
and we'll spend eternity together. We'll work together. We'll minister together. We'll build something different than this world has to offer. A kingdom that is built upon the person and the work of Christ. May we learn to love you and love others the way that you intended. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so.